You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of Scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make Him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety, over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today. Uh, did any of you have any uh, observations, questions, insights, wisdom, or, or, or questions about what you have read so far, either today or earlier? I have a question. Yes. It might be pretty simple, but I noticed at the end of Job, so 42, uh, I didn't know what was going on, but he mentions... It says that God says to Eliphaz, I think is the first friend, and condemns him, and he says, my anger burns against you and your two friends, but he only addresses Eliphaz. Yeah. And then Elihu? Uh, which verse are you looking at? Uh, 42 verse 7. 7, okay. And he says, yeah, you guys offer sacrifices or whatever. But like, Elihu is not mentioned no. at all. No. But he's still was kind of doing the same thing as his friends. So, does that mean anything? Or is it just not necessary information? It's surprising that any of them get mentioned at all by name. Uh, but to be mentioned by name, that, that makes it more serious. Um, at, at other times, when a person is named and God is expressing, I am angry with you. I'm upset with you. I am displeased with you. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a pretty grave statement. Elihu's not mentioned. So maybe God's um, recognition that Elihu made a good point with, uh, with suffering does have the benefit of development in us. So that's a good point. So, so maybe, maybe you got to pass <laughs> for that point. Um, watch later in the epistles. Occasionally Paul will mention a, a man among you is sinning. And sometimes he'll mention people by name. <laughs> and when he does, that's really serious because uh, when Paul wrote, those people were still alive. <laughs> and so and to call him out in a letter, uh, it, it, that's pretty shaming. Okay. Now, anybody else? Any, any other comments, questions, observations? Weirdness? What? Oh, what? <laughs> uh, about like if Joe believed he was without sin completely to say what he said. 
Wait, a louder, louder. Uh, can the David incite that, like in verse, in chapter 2, verse 4, verse 3, it says, like, and the Lord said to say, have you considered my servant Joshua, there is no like him on the earth, and blameless and upright to praise God and preservation, even he still holds fast in faith, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And, and what is your question there? Challenge? Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's certainly a verbal challenge of accusation. Um, a man, in verse 4, a man will give all he has for his own life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. That's an accusation. And so Satan is using Job to get at Yahweh. And if anything, Job is a pawn in a chess game between Satan and Yahweh. Why would Satan do that? Why would God accept it? Oh, God has a timetable. Uh, I have no doubt that he figured out that timetable a long time ago. Uh, the, the truth is that the crucifixion of Jesus was actually part of the early plan from the foundation of the world. God, because he has foreknowledge, knew it would eventually lead to that. As if a lot of things God would, would allow to process without him acting upon it immediately because he knows he will act it upon he will act upon it ultimately and it would be inevitable oh oh in the avenger movies thanos the, the really wicked wicked guy he keeps saying i am inevitable <laughs> and <laughs> yeah right okay now really messed really messed up characters okay <laughs> But in it is a recognition that there are, in the cosmos, a few things that are inevitable. And when you get to John week, and you will be reading the last book of the Bible, the Apocalypse of Jesus, often called the Revelation of John, there are inevitable actions that God has been planning all along, which will include the capture of Satan, that dragon, that old serpent, the devil and being cast out of the presence of God. So that is inevitable. So at the point here in Job, God allows Satan to accuse. I believe God already knows what is inevitable. The book of Job doesn't reveal that. The book of Revelation does. And so, uh, and Jesus gives um, uh, a foretaste of it. He mentions it very briefly, but not in detail in the gospel about the, the consequence that will come upon the devil. And so I would say God has, each time Satan shows up, he's bringing accusation, um, he's bringing opposition, he's adversary of God, and God allows it. He keeps allowing it. 
when could he at, at any point back then have grabbed Satan or sent his angels to grab Satan and to drag him out of the presence of God forever? He could have. He did not. Those are the facts. <laughs> I've learned to live with the story that has been told and the, and the way it has played out. Because, well, it's almost 5 o'clock. Is, 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 this, is this the right time to look at, at Satan? I guess so. Well, he shows up in the story. Job 1.6. One day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord. And the accuser, Satan, came with them. Okay. Back in Genesis 3, the serpent is not named, but the final Biblion, the final scroll of our Bible, identifies the ancient serpent as Satan, the dragon, the devil. Revelation 12.9 says, The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. And so those four identifiers are used in that one sentence. And to me, that's like a police report that says, the, per, the perpetrator was, was brought in, was charged. He's also known, okay, the perpetrator is the great dragon. He was hurled. He's also known as the ancient serpent, also known as the devil, also known as Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels, his agents with him. So the character in Job is the same character in Revelation 12, who is actually the same character who was in Genesis 3 same being, but he apparently takes different forms, different presentations, as he is able to. The primary enemy of Yahweh made a choice. Uh, Zechariah, he shows up there. Uh, Zechariah has a vision for the future of the nation after the exile, and after the exile, they're going to need um, good human leadership as a governor, and good leadership as the temple is rebuilt, and so Zerubbabel is the, uh, he's going to wind up being the governor, and um, Joshua is the high priest as they're rebuilding the temple. So these are real people, Zerubbabel as governor and Joshua as an actual priest. Zechariah has a vision in which God showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. And so this is an actual person, but, but the prophet Zechariah has a vision in the spiritual realm of opposition against the priesthood. Now, let me show you this. Uh, the word adversary in Hebrew is ha-satan. The verb to accuse in Hebrew is lisitno, same root. Accuse or be adversary in Hebrew is satan. There was this creature who opposed God, created by God, but rebelled against God, and we found out later that God gave him a name. The Hebrew word is Satan, which means adversary. God nicknamed this angel adversary or accuser, because in Hebrew, that's what the word means, and it's used as a noun and as a verb and as a proper name. Uh, it occurs several times as a, a verb. Uh, there's the story in the book of Numbers of Balaam riding on a donkey, and Balaam was a prophet for hire. Uh, Balaam would give false prophecies. If people paid him money, he would go to the king and tell him how great the king was and how great the battle would go for the king. And then he would hold out his hand and get paid for the prophecy. Well, it wasn't a prophecy from God. It was, he was just putting on an act, getting paid for prophets. 
So Balaam's on his way to give one of those prophecies to the king. And God decides that he's actually going to use this false prophet to tell something true to the king. And uh, God was very angry when the prophet went. And the angel of the Lord stood in the road in order to oppose him. And the word in Hebrew is le satan, in order to oppose, to get in his way. Balaam is riding on his donkey and his two servants with him. And, and Balaam doesn't see the angel, but the donkey does. The donkey has the insight, the spiritual insight to see the angel. And the prophet can't see him because he's not in tune with the things of God, okay? It's a beautiful story. Uh, Numbers 22, 32, the angel of the Lord asked him, why have you beaten your donkey? Because uh, the prophet starts yelling at his donkey, beating the donkey, get going, and the donkey tells him there's an angel in the way. The donkey speaks. Why are you beating me? Okay, <laughs> and, and the prophet tells the donkey, are you trying to make a fool out of me? God has got a sense of humor. A talking donkey, the donkey is sharp enough to see the angel when the prophet the so-called prophet, can't see the angel right in front of him. But the angel is there to oppose him. And the Hebrew word for oppose is Satan. That doesn't mean the angel was Satan. It means the, the action he was doing in Hebrew is the same word. That's where the word comes from. The name Satan is derived from the word that means oppose, get in the way, be an adversary, or accuse. Is it, why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you, Liz Satan, because your path is a reckless one before me. Okay, the guy gets his act together. He realizes he's talking to an angel. He stops beating his donkey. He listens to God. He takes the real message of the, of the word of God to the king, and it just, it changes his life. Okay, when you get to the book of Numbers, watch that episode, and look at how, I think it's funny. And it's, it's, it's God making fun of a false prophet. It's, it, it is comedy. It's, it really is. It is well done. In, in Zechariah, uh, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? In Matthew 4, uh, when the devil took Jesus to tempt him up to the high place, showed him the mountains, showed him the nations of the world, bow down and I'll give you all this stuff. Jesus said, away from me, Satana, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So Jesus calls him by the nickname that God gave him. Now, notice in Matthew 16, 23, uh, Jesus had given another one of his, his revelations that the Son of Man must be arrested, must be beaten, must be killed. And Peter is all up in arms, oh no, that'll never happen. And Jesus turns to Peter and, say, and he said, Get behind me, Satana. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Now, I, I, I mention that um, because I, some people say, Well, Satan possessed Peter at that point. And so Peter was Satan possessed, devil possessed. And so Jesus is talking to the, to the devil. I, and I'm thinking, not, um, Jesus might actually be using it the same way the Old Testament book of Numbers uses it, meaning opponent or adversary. So I don't think Jesus is talking to the devil. I think he's talking to Peter, saying, you are behaving in an adversarial manner. Get out of my way. The same way the angel was in the way of the donkey and the prophet Balaam. So, so Satan, as a Hebrew word, can be a noun that means adversary or accuser. It can, it can be a verb 
which can mean to oppose or to accuse or to get in my way, or it can be a name, a nickname. I think God borrowed the nickname from the verb and the noun. Now, I've mentioned that before, and some people have accused me of not believing in Satan. And I'm like, no, 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 don't misunderstand. There is a creature that God called Satan, the devil, the dragon, the serpent, same guy. It's just that, that in some places it doesn't mean the devil. It means uh, in my way, uh, opposing me, uh, adversary. Okay, you, you follow that? So, so there is an actual Satan who opposes God. I, I think to understand Satan showing up in Job, it's helpful to see Ezekiel 28, 14. In the ancient world, especially among the prophets, it was recognized that, that uh, nations and, and countries were ruled by kings or rulers. That beyond or behind or above those rulers, very often there was a spiritual power, a spiritual force, something demonic, something devilish. And Isaiah has this, Ezekiel has this, Daniel has this where there are earthly rulers, and oftentimes there is a spiritual being who's, who's horrible and wicked, who's influencing that earthly ruler. Ezekiel 28, 14, uh, it's speaking about the, the ruler of the city of Tyre. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. Now, Ezekiel doesn't use the word Satan or devil or dragon or serpent. Those are the ones that show up in the book of Revelation. But to me, it looks like, ah, that's the backstory. That seems to be the backstory told in a poetic lament. In fact, it's labeled as a lament, which is a, a word of woe, how terrible it is for you because you've done these things. Second um, Corinthians eleven fourteen says, no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. So, the character Satan, the devil, the dragon, the serpent, shows up from time to time as you read through the Bible. He is never the main character. He's always the opponent, the accuser, the adversary. He opposes the plan of God, the master plan of God of redemption. And he will look for every opportunity to exploit a way to thwart or to undermine or to derail or in some way diffuse the redemptive plan of God. God has an enemy. When we choose God, we choose also those who are on God's side and those who are opposed to God. If they're opposed to God and we're on God's side, they're going to be opposed to us. That, that's just the, the, the alliance we've made with God puts us in opposition with the adversary against God. Job was in that position. Because he was for God, there was an accuser who came to accuse him. Did you feel that, or was it? That was just closing the door. Oh, okay, good. No, we're fine. We're good. Yeah, we're good. We're not wet. It's just. Anybody have any question about that? Okay. 
there is a devil who is Satan, who is the dragon, who is the serpent, who is the adversary of God, who accuses Job, and later on we see that he's the accuser of the saints. He will look for ways to undermine God, to lie, to deceive, to ensnare, to kill, to murder, to destroy. So he's, he's, he's up to no good. Okay. Yes, Bamboo. And uh, you don't have to go this right now if you don't have a timeline. Um, so I just wanted to kind of ask the classic Lucifer question. I know the answer, you know the answer. I'm not sure everyone else has heard this before. Mm -hmm. uh, I wonder if maybe you could just cover, you know, is Lucifer Satan? Who's Lucifer? Oh, you're asking me? Okay. Uh, what English Bible are you using? ESV. English Standard Version. Okay. Does Lucifer appear in the ESV? Okay. For those of you who use a Spanish Bible, does Lucifer appear in your version of the Spanish Bible? In the Korean Bible that you use, does Lucifer appear in the Korean Bible? In the Old Testament. Okay. Do, do you know where? Or, or which Spanish version? The Hebrew word is achel, which means uh, a light that's shining, and the following phrase is the one who carries that light. Mm -hmm. and, and it's... Yeah. yeah. I, was I was teaching in the DBS in Berlin, and um, most of the students were German, but there was also um, uh, French, Swiss... Australian, and uh, the Australian student, now I was teaching in English and everything was being translated into German. The Australian student um, brought up Lucifer and the German student started snickering, giggling a little bit under their breath because they knew that uh, no German Bible ever translated has ever had Lucifer in the Bible. Because when Martin Luther first translated the Bible into German, he was determined to use the original Hebrew and Greek. Now, Martin Luther had been ordained as a Roman Catholic priest, and he was required to do everything from the Latin Bible. And part of the Reformation was to skip over the Latin, because that was a later translation, and to get back to the roots of the Hebrew and Greek. So when he translated the Bible, he didn't use the Latin. Luciferine comes from the Latin. It's a Latin translation. The word means light bearer, carrying a torch. That's what the word, that's luciferine means carry a light. The Hebrew word, achel, means carry a light, light bearer. The Greek word means carry a light, light bearer. The Australian student was using an English Bible 
that had the word Lucifer in Isaiah 12. And it's only in those English Bibles. Uh, the Italian culture around Rome has old folk tales that were used by, um, oh, uh, the guy that wrote Dante's Inferno. Um, um, Eligero. Yeah, Dante's Inferno, uh, Purgatorio, uh, the, the Divine Comedy. Um, and it, it is from, in, in the Divine Comedy, uh, Dante's Inferno, uh, it, it's a poem that later was turned into a set of plays to be done in the theater in the 1300s in Italy. And in the, the poem, um, I'm trying to remember the guy's name, uh, Alighieri was his first name, the author. Yes, uh, yeah, Dante. That's, right. that's, that, that's his family name, late last name. So um, uh, Dante was, um, he wrote about uh, bishops and uh, contemporary magistrates, uh, mayors, in order to have in the story corrupt mayors, corrupt priests, corrupt bishops, corrupt governors, and corrupt kings as a part of the story. And he, in his story, in his poem, has a hell with, I think, nine rings of hell. And the closer you get to the middle ring, uh, it gets colder. And in the, in the center ring, there is this huge dragon who's stuck in the ice, and whenever he rises up to attack anybody around him, and around him is Brutus, stuck in the ice, uh, who assassinated Caesar, Julius Caesar, as well as uh, a, 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 an old pope who had died who was known to be a corrupt leader, and a governor stuck in the ice who's, who's died and stuck in hell. And so it, it's not a biblical image of hell. It's a theatrical myth about hell. And in the poem, he identifies the dragon as Satan, and he uses the name Lucifer interchangeably with Satan. And though that poem, when it was presented as a play in the theater, the, the audience loved the stories because it was poking fun of, uh, of contemporary leaders of government as well as Bible characters. Um, Judas Iscariot is in the play, and he gets stuck in the ice with the dragon. Every time the dragon opens his, its mouth, more ice comes out, and it makes him get more stuck, and the other sinners get stuck in this icy, hellish place. But the play uses the name Luciferine and Satana interchangeably. And that impacted Italian culture. So that in the Roman Catholic Church, they did not make a distinction between Satan and Lucifer. But the word Lucifer does not appear in the Hebrew or Greek. The name Lucifer is not in the Bible. The character Lucifer is not in the Bible. Satan is. And so... The, the, all the Germans there in the DBS knew, the, they knew all that story because, uh, in fact, one of them said, we're surprised how you English-speaking people have believed in this Lucifer character who's not biblical. But, but Lucifer has become a character in Western culture. Uh, there's a TV show. Um, often there are movies, or, or Lucifer is almost assumed to be a pseudonym for Satan, but he's not. Uh, the Isaiah passage, it, 
in chapter 12 is an earthly king who believes that he is a great person. Are we not getting any sound? Nope. Understand. So, uh, the... Oops, sorry. Oh, oh, there it goes. We're good. It was, it was common for earthly kings to make bold claims about how great they were, who they were, their power, but they were making claims that were not true because they really are human beings. So uh, look at um, Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28 starts off with, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And so this is a lament spoken against this king. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas, but you are a man and not a God. Here's a classic example, and there are other examples of this in Ezekiel and in Isaiah and in um, Babylonian and Egyptian writing. It was common for kings of the world to make these brash claims about how, how wonderful and glorious and eternal and powerful they were, but they're just human beings spouting off. In fact, this says, you are but a man, not a God, though you think you are as wise as a God. So the, the, the first 10 verses are like that. Uh, are you wiser than Daniel? Is no secret hidden from you? Uh, by your wisdom and understanding, you've gained wealth for yourself, amassed gold and silver in your treasuries. By your great skill in trading, you've increased your wealth. Because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you think you're wise, because you think you're as wise as a God, I am going to bring foreigners against you, most ruthless of nations. And um, the, the, uh, Tyre was a small kingdom. And when the Assyrians came through to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel, the city of Tyre had made an alliance with the Assyrians and survived. And so they didn't get destroyed the way Israel did. Ezekiel is giving this prophecy just before they get wiped out by the Babylonians. And so this is anticipation of the fact that you escaped last time, but next time you're going to get wiped away. I'm going to bring foreigners against you, a ruthless nation. They will draw their swords against your wisdom and beauty and pierce your shining splendor. Verse 9, then you will say, I am a god in the presence of those who kill you. You will be but a man, not a god. Verse 10, you will die the death of the uncircumcised at the hands of foreigners. And so the first 10 verses are a human being claiming to be a god. Now, you can claim you're a god all day long. It does not make it true. But when you get to verse 11, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre. Now, wait a minute. Didn't, didn't we just have a a taunt against the ruler of Tyre. And in the Hebrew, there are two different words. Um, and they both mean ruler or guy in charge. But they're not the same. The word of the Lord came to me, uh, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says, what I just read to you. You were a model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. And so now we're, we're not talking about an earthly human man. We're talking about a being that is not of this earth. And so in Ezekiel 28, there's, a, there's two different taunts or laments against two different individuals. One is human, one is not. And so that, that's come. So the Isaiah passage, Isaiah 12, is a human making a claim to be the bright morning star, what we now today call Saturn. It, in the ancient world, uh, the, the, the Haleo was, you get up 
early, early before the sunrise. It's still kind of dark, but there's, there's one piercing light that you can walk across your yard and you can, it's giving you just enough light. And so that was considered the star of the morning. Um, and the earthly king in Isaiah 12 is claiming that that's, that's who I am. But he's not. He's just like this guy at the beginning of Ezekiel 28, not the guy at the end of Ezekiel 28. So here, Ezekiel, it gives a, ju a juxtaposition side by side of two rulers of the same city at the same time. One's a human, and he, he is actually the ruler, but he's going to be killed. The other is in the spiritual realm, but he's been kicked out of the Garden of Eden. He used to be there. And I would say that this second ruler is later seen as Satan, devil, dragon, serpent. Okay. Does that help, Bamboo? It does. Okay. But, the, but the, the, the use of the word Lucifer in the church is so widespread that this is not a battle I can win. It's just, <laughs> but this goes back to observation. Uh, inductive Bible study is read what's on the page and don't let these false characters creep in. Uh, if anything, it's an attempt by the enemy to throw a false character in there to get you chasing after something else that's not really, really there, okay? Yeah, Mia. My mom even would tell me this story. Where would, like, the Lucifer story about him being an angel that foresaw over music in heavenly realms and then rebelled? Like, obviously, Satan was someone who rebelled against God, okay. but where did that <laughs> Always love and respect your mother. Yeah, <laughs> but even our parents may have heard stories that they've overlaid on the scripture so that even when they read the Bible, they've heard those stories so much that as they read the scripture, they thought they saw it there. In this time of your life, as you're reading carefully, in community with each other, read carefully to see if you find anything that supports that story. Let me know. Well, I, I don't think I've ever seen it, so I'm like, where could it... Did it possibly originate from also like the Italian plays, as it was in Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, in, in, the, in the sequence of Bible, God inspired the Hebrew scriptures in Hebrew with a little bit of Aramaic in Daniel and Ezra. And Aramaic is a sister language of Hebrew. It, it's part of the same group. The New Testament writings were all given in Greek. There, there's a tradition that Matthew was, he spoke Hebrew as his first language and Greek as his second, and he might have written down his original draft in Hebrew and then translated it into Greek so people, other people could read it. What we have are the Greek. So Latin was translated, the Bible was translated into Latin about 400 years later, after the resurrection. And so it is a translation from the Hebrew and Greek. And for a long time, the Roman church only wanted to use the Latin and in some places, the Latin translation was not very accurate. It's just because the uh, Hebrew is a very pictographic language. It, it, it's, they use picture words. Uh, Greek is a, a very linear language. Uh, Latin is a real flat language. It's, it's, do any of you speak Latin? It's, it's rigid in its concepts, and some of the biblical poetry and symbolism doesn't 
it's hard to translate it into Latin because it doesn't, it doesn't, Latin is not a suitable language for that. And therefore, if you translate, if you read the Latin and then translate that into German or Spanish or English, you're going to move that much farther away from the original Hebrew. And where the old English Bibles are bad is where they use the Latin. And that's why Martin Luther said, cut the Latin out because you don't need it, go back to the Hebrew. And, and, the, and, the, and even when the Germans translate new translations today, they go back to the, to the Hebrew and to the Greek. So, and the Bible you got, the, the, the ESV, they went back to the Hebrew and to the Greek. Yes, mm-hmm. Vulgate and the ones after that, okay? Which in, in some places, are, it, it's very good, but in many places, it's very bad. Um, and when the King James translation was translated in 1611, uh, James, King of England, had instructed them to try not to move too far away from the bishop's Bible, which was about 40 years old, which was very dependent upon the Latin. And where the King James is bad, and it is in many places, it's because they depended upon the Latin instead upon going back to the Hebrew and Greek. Okay, so that, that's my response to that. So uh, Lucifer doesn't belong, doesn't appear, leave him, leave him alone, but we still have to deal with the actual devil, the Satan, the dragon, the serpent, the deceiver, the liar, the accuser, the adversary. Okay. Yes, Bimbo. Uh, the Isaiah 12, uh, let's see. Oh, is it, um, let's see, uh, Isaiah th- 13, is it 13? Where is it? Where is it? Oh, 14, I'm sorry, Isaiah 14, 12. Yeah, I was thinking, I had 12 on the brain. Isaiah 14, 12. Um, in, in Spanish, there are some translations of the Bible that you read Lucifer. Right. But in other translations, you read Son of the Morning. Right. Uh, the, the one from 1904, I think. Um, uh, was that Vieira? Probably, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and back then, they were really trusting on the, the Latin. But since then, uh, they, they've taken the attitude of, no, let's cut that out and get farther back. Um, Lucifer is cool. Yeah, was it the um, was the NVI, the the new the the was it uh, Nueva Version Internacional? Yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of the bases in Mexico use that one, and uh, and they said Lucifer's not in that one. Yeah. Uh, but so, so uh, it's chapter fourteen in Isaiah, and um, take up verse three. Take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Uh, the oppressor has come, or has broken the rod. All the lands are, are um, being broken. Uh, pine trees, let's see, uh, the grave below is all astir. All your pomp has been brought down to the grave along with the noise of your harps. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to earth. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mountain of the assembly on the utmost highest of the sacred mountain. This is a human being making these claims. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. This reads just like Ezekiel 28, the first 10 verses, which was a human king making these kind of of claims. Uh, Those who see you stare at you. Uh, They ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? And so in the text in Isaiah, it identifies him 
as a, as a man, as a male human. Uh, all the kings of the nations lie in state, but you are cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch. So there's nothing in here about this character being in the Garden of Eden, being a worship leader, uh, being a cherub. Well, in, in, in Ezekiel, he's called a cherub. That, that's the terminology. Um, prepare a place to slaughter his sons, so he's a human being who has children. So the Isaiah passage is a man making a bold claim, and he's claiming to be like the star in the heaven just before the sun shines. Um, the nephew of Julius Caesar was Octavius. He was adopted. And when uh, Julius Caesar was murdered, Octavius became the next leader just uh, um, because he had more support than anybody else. And at his coronation as the new ruler, he wanted to identify himself as more than human. And so they, he, he demanded that he be called the most august Caesar, Caesar Augustus, which means I am no longer human. I am on my way up to, de to deity. That's what Caesar Augustus, the most august Caesar. So his name is Octavius, but he made the claim that he had superseded humanity and was on his way to divinity. So, he, he, so when the Latins used August, that's what they believed. So when they saluted him as August Caesar, they were actually calling him a rising god because he made the claim. So it, 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 it is natural for earthly rulers to get that caught up in themselves. That doesn't make it true. So Isaiah 14 has a guy making that claim. It doesn't make it true. Ezekiel 28, the first 10 verses. Guy makes those claims, not true. Uh, the, 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 the princes, uh, half of the princes in the book of Daniel are these wicked creatures. The other half are actually good. You have to read the context to tell, is this a good prince or a bad prince? And the, the bad ones are making all these puffy claims. I mean, they, and Daniel puts them in, in their place. And then the prince Michael confronts the prince of Persia. And it's not the earthly ruler, it's the wicked spiritual ruler. But that's for the later prophets and post-exile. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, 530, right? Okay. When did you want me to stop today? At what time? Okay. Anybody need to stretch or stand up or turn around or say anything? Okay. In the middle of Job, I mean, almost in, smack in the middle, chapter 19, the, these guys have been running circles about, about their stuff. And Job's response at one point is, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see him. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Now, I, I see some awesome stuff in there. The, the word that gets translated redeemer is in Hebrew, goel. It's a powerful word. And this in the book of Job is probably the oldest story in which goel appears in the text. It's the same word that appears in Exodus 6. Looked at that yesterday. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. 
in, in the whole episode of uh, You Were Slaves, I will take you out from being slaves, okay? That whole redemptive thing in Exodus 6. So that's the first time it appears in the Bible, but this Job story is probably older than that episode. So that's why this would be seen as the first mention of Goel as redeemer in the chronology of the Bible. Beginning of the redemptive story, how God will continually bring his children back into right relationship with him. Now, Job says, I know. Now, he's in pain. He's lost. Lost his family. Lost his farm. Lost his flocks. Lost his position. Lost his wealth. Lost his health. You know, the whole boils on the skin, just the irritations. And I know that my Redeemer lives. So it's bad. And his wife is telling him, you know, curse God and die. I know that my Goel lives. And that in the end of all things, he, the Goel, the Redeemer, will stand upon the earth. He has hope for the future. Now, I remind you, he doesn't have John's gospel to read, which tells us this, okay? The resurrection gets reported, and Jesus is coming back, okay? He doesn't have um, 1 Timothy, 1 Thessalonians, uh, where Paul talks about the parousia, the bodily appearing of Jesus, that the very presence of God in flesh on earth will come, uh, white horse, flaming sword, army of heaven coming behind him. He doesn't have any of that to read. It hasn't been taught yet. But in his heart, he's got a trust that there's a redeemer. In the end, the redeemer will stand upon the earth. And he acknowledges that Job will die. After my skin has been destroyed, that's his way of saying, I will die, but after I'm dead, yet in my flesh, I will see God. Now, now, now wait, wait a minute. He hasn't read 1 Corinthians 15, which promises us the resurrection. The Jesus who rose from the dead will raise us. Check me out. Go read it. Good stuff. Jesus has the power, he proved it by raising himself, he will raise us up from the dead. He's never read that. It hasn't been written at the time of his story. But he says, after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. He, in some measure, believes in the resurrection of the dead, including himself. You see that? I'm not making this up. That's, that's what that means. After my skin has been destroyed, after I'm dead, yet, that, that's, a, that's a grammatical transition, even, even though I will die, yet in my flesh, he believes in a bodily resurrection, not just a spiritual resurrection, but in my flesh, I will see God. I will have a bodily resurrection. I will, I will see him with my own eyes, even though my flesh has rotted and my eyeballs have rotted. I'll get new eyeballs. I'll get a new body. I will see him with my own eyes. I and not somebody else. It won't be a surrogate or a substitute. It'll be me. How my heart yearns within me. Now, he still lost his family and his, his farm and his crops and his health. And even if he dies, even if he dies, he says, you know what? I will, I will, I'll have flesh again. I'll have eyeballs again someday, and I will see my Goel, my Redeemer. How my heart yearns within me for that. So in this early, early, early story, 
we have redemption and resurrection. Redemption and resurrection. This early. Now, he doesn't flesh it out. He doesn't explain it the way Paul does. I mean, Paul goes on for chapter and chapter, you know, about if, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then our faith is in vain. But he is risen from the dead. So guess what? We have great faith. So, but Job doesn't know that yet. But he knows this. I know this. I know that my Redeemer lives. That my Redeemer lives. And that in the end of all things, he will be standing upon the earth. Well, guess what? You get to the last book of the Bible. It borrows freely from, from, from Job's confession of Jesus coming and standing upon the earth. He puts his foot upon the mount, and the mountain is split in two. Uh, Jesus mentions it. Zechariah mentions it. Revelation mentions it. The foot of the Messiah will land on the earth, and he will establish power. So, you already read from Exodus 6. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you. I will gaalti. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. So grammatically, I'm looking at the verbs. Show me your verbs. I will bring. I will free. I will redeem. I will take. I will be. That's God's promise. And so embedded in the middle of that is, is, is Gaalti. I will, I will be your redeemer. I will do the act of redemption. I will pay the price necessary to get you out. I'll do whatever it takes. I will, I will stretch my arm out to reach you, and I will bring mighty acts of judgment. I'll take ten plagues, please. <laughs> ten plagues, plus other mighty acts. Uh, you know, parting of the Red Sea, Red Sea coming back, manna, surprisingly, every morning, at least six out of seven mornings of the day, and water out of a rock. You need something to drink? So, mighty acts. Uh, an army shows up on their path. You can't pass here, and they destroy the army. Uh, those mighty acts from God. That's, that's what God was willing to do to redeem, to, to get his people out of the bad position they were in into the right position they should be. The Lord established a system of Goel. God is Goel. He is Redeemer. He also wants human beings to capture a sense of that on earth. There are some activities and attributes of God that we can't do. Okay, that that all-power thing, he's got all-power, supreme power. Okay, we don't have supreme power. He's got that knowledge thing. He knows all. Okay, that whole omniscience thing. Okay, we can know some but we can't know all. And that omnipresence thing, being at all places at all time for all people to do all kinds of stuff, I, we're limited. I'm stuck. I, this, this flesh, I, I live within a time-space continuum framework. Okay. God, not so much. So there are some aspects of God that we can't do at all. There are other aspects of God, character traits, attributes, that he actually wants to see in us. God says, I'm holy, you be holy be uniquely devoted to purpose. That's really what holiness is. Be uniquely devoted to God's purpose. Okay, so be holy. So God is holy, we should be holy. Merciful. God shows mercy, we should show mercy. God shows loving kindness. We are supposed to show loving kindness. God redeems. We are to discover how we can redeem others. And so that's one of the aspects that are in God that should be in us also. 
So there are, there's that set of things that God does and only God alone. Don't even try. And then there's the other set of God stuff. And guess what? The way he designed us, the way he wired us, we should strive to either do or reflect what God is in us. And sometimes it's by our doing, serving, helping, caring, sacrificing. And sometimes we're reflecting his glory and his image. And so God brings up the goel issue with human beings. In Leviticus, uh, if, a, if a family member goes into debt because they owed money on a property and they borrowed to pay off the debt, but they can't pay the debt, then a goel in the family should step up like a rich uncle or something and pay off the debt so that the land is not forfeited and winds up out of the family. The idea is so that you keep the land in the family so when you die, your children get it. In Leviticus 25, so what if one of you makes an agreement uh, to give some of your crop to uh, th that whole bargain with the, uh, I, I want to get three sheep and I'll give you four bales of, of oats. And so you take the sheep and you expect the oats to come in and the locust eat it and you wind up owing and you can't pay. Well, you now sell yourself into debt. Leviticus 25 says, if one of your family members has sold them themselves into debt, into slavery because of their debt, then a goel in the family should rise up, pay off the debt so that person can go back and take care of their family. That's Leviticus 25. In Numbers 35, it uses the word goel to say if a member of the family is murdered and if there's a court case and the, the murderer is captured and there are witnesses who saw it and the person gets tried in the court case and they find them guilty, then a goel in the family shall be appointed the executioner to take the life of the convicted one. That's uh, Numbers 35. And all of those use goel, talking about a person. And then um, Deuteronomy 25 uh, indicates that uh, if, if you have a brother who's married and your brother dies, then one of the brothers of the dead man should step in to care for the widow and specifically, legally, marry the widow or assume the same responsibility as if they were married, or at least take care of her and her children, and provide an heir for the brother who died, carrying on the name of the dead brother. That's Deuteronomy 25. All of those are examples of human beings on earth doing goel, doing redemption, and becoming a redeemer. When you read the book of Ruth, you got Naomi, taking the girls back, she, you know, she tells you know, the girls, stay here. And, and Ruth says, no, I'm with you. I'm going to go to your homeland. And they get there, and Naomi sends Ruth out to collect at the edge of a field because the, the law of the Lord was when you're farming and you're harvesting, uh, don't collect everything, but leave a little bit on the outer edges so that hungry refugees, foreigners, strangers, people in need, hungry, can come to the edge of your field and they can, they can get the gleanings from the edge. So that's what Ruth is doing. Ruth comes home and reports that to Naomi. That's when Naomi says, wow, this is awesome. The man who owns the field, Boaz, he's a goel. He is one of our kinsmen and he has the opportunity to step in and help two widows. And so the book of Ruth identifies him as a goel. 
except he's not the closest one to somebody else. And then when you read the story, you see the whole drama that plays out. All of this is the redemptive plan of God fleshed out in human lives. It doesn't take away from the divine redemption. It's the divine redemption invading our time and space saying, guess what? God is like this. Why don't you try being like that way too? Stepping into people's lives and, and helping people who can't help themselves. So a kinsman redeemer would redeem, would buy back what's forfeited, would avenge, would protect, would carry, would support, would deliver. So the principles of kinsman redeemer were revealed by God during the period that Israel had no central civil authority. And so all of the aspects of being a redeemer and redemption was to step in because you can't count on the government to do it. They had no social services. They had no welfare system. They had no retirement plans. It was just, it was people watching out for other people and God laying it as a responsibility. Each man of a family, and, and Goel is always expressed in the masculine sense because the men were controlling the money, were controlling the farms, were that it was a patriarchal society. So God addressed it to the men, man up, man up. That's essentially what it was. Every man was a Goel and every person had many Goelim, or at least the opportunity to do redemption, but not all of the men who were a Goel did it. Maybe that's why I look at Boaz and say, you go, man, because he did at the right time. He did the right thing in the right way. So, But the, the, but the, but the, the recurring theme of Goel is, is throughout Scripture. Uh, Isaiah 41, 14. Do not, do not be afraid, O worm Jacob, O little Israel, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, your Goel, the Holy One of Israel. So here's God identifying himself. That's one of his names because it's part of his nature. It's, one of, it's part of his skill set. It's what he's like. It's what he does. It's one of the many aspects of God. Isaiah 43, 14. This is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer, your Goel, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took pride. Isaiah 44. This is what the Lord says. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, Okay, we've got four different aspects of, or five aspects. Let's see. Uh, this is what Yahweh says, the great I am. Israel's king, the Melech, uh, the, the, the master over all the sovereign. He's the redeemer. He's the Goel. He is Yahweh Sabaoth. He is the I am of the host. The Sabaoth is captain of the army, uh, captain, general, commanding leader of the entire army of heaven. That's what Yahweh Sabaoth is, Lord Almighty. I am the first. I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. So embedded in all of those descriptions of the aspects of God is Redeemer, is Goel. One of many. It's not the only one, but it's a big deal. It, God has said, this is part of what I do. It's an important part of what I do. It's mentioned so many times. Goel is all over the place, most of the time talking about God or God identifying himself, and then occasionally instructions for human beings on earth to do it and to be it. Because that's the way God is. It's another way to be Godlike, and to capture that idea of there's somebody in need. Well, let me step in and redeem their situation, redeem them from the situation, pay their bills, man up, do the right thing, help those who cannot help themselves. Isaiah 44, 22, 24. This is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer. I'm the one who formed you in the womb. I am the I am. <laughs> I am the Lord. I, the Hebrew in Isaiah 44 is 
awesome. It, it just because it, it is redundant in that I am the I am, using the, the pure verb and then the, the name as a verb. I am the I am. And then in English, it comes out as I am the Lord, which it loses, it loses something in that translation. Okay, I think, I think God's trying to be emphatic. I am the I am who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Isaiah 47, 4, our Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, is his name. Yahweh Sabaoth is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel is the Redeemer, the Goel. All of that to say is, I, I do this naturally. I redeem because it's part of my nature. I want to redeem. I want to do redemption. It's, it, God is driven by this. It's part, of, it's, it's part of the purpose of God toward his people, is, is to buy us out of slavery, to pay off our debt, to avenge what has been done against us, to protect us when we are innocent, and to offer mercy to us when we're guilty. Isaiah 48, this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am Yahweh, the Lord your God, who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. That is an act of redemption. I teach you what's best. I direct you in the way you should go. And that brings us in a redemptive path for ourselves and for others. Redemption is not just about me getting redeemed. It's about me in my redemption, bringing that redeemer to other people. And on earth, during my life, seeing people walk that redemptive path, being bought out of their bad situation, being helped when they cannot help themselves, being carried when they cannot carry themselves. That, that's that's the, the earthly human practice of redemption because there is an eternal, supernatural, heavenly work of God to redeem us. Isaiah 54, for your maker is your husband. Okay, here's where a lot of guys, we're, we're confused. And so I've talked to women and talked to my wife and, and ladies have helped me Get past the fact that I'm a male. I'm the husband. Well, get over it. You are the bride, every one of us, male and female, in this image, in this analogy, in this picture. Go with it, okay? Just go with it. For your maker is your husband. Your creator is your husband. He is Yahweh Sabaoth. He is the Lord, Lord Almighty. His name is Yahweh Sabaoth. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the one who is devoted to the cause of Israel. He's committed to see Israel with God. He is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. Now, how many descriptions can Isaiah fit in one sentence? Well, he keeps doing a marvelous job of it. I mean, this is beautiful. In a surge of anger, I hid my face for you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. The Lord your Goel. Isaiah 59, the Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. I haven't run out yet. Isaiah 60, you will drink the milk of nations and be nursed at royal breast. Then you will know that I, Yahweh, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Okay, so the Savior is the Redeemer, is the Mighty One of Jacob, is Yahweh. When we look 
at the face of our Savior. We're looking into the face of our Redeemer, our God, the mighty one of Jacob, our judge. Isaiah 63, for you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. Our Goel. Okay. Is there any confusion over who the redeemer is? Okay. <laughs> Romans 3.24. You are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. All that stuff about the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel in the Old Testament is put into the incarnation, into the life of Jesus of Nazareth, and he is bent on a mission. And nothing stopped him from his mission. When people got in his way, he went right through. When a crowd gathered around and tried to stone him, he passed right through the crowd because he could because it was his intent to pay a price. It was his intent to avenge a wrong. It was his intent to cover our debt. He paid a debt we could not pay. In him we have redemption through his blood. That's the price he paid to pay our debt. The forgiveness of sins is what has been given to us in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And a lot of people, they read Ephesians, and when they see riches, they think, money, money, money. But read it carefully. I practice IBS. I observe the words on the page. In him we have redemption through his blood. So it is by means of his blood that we have been redeemed. What, what that gives us is the forgiveness of our sins, which is in accord with or in harmony with the riches of God's grace. God is rich in grace. God has a vault. The vault is full. You open the door to the vault, and what's there? Grace. Unending. Eternal. Uncountable. It's just so much of it, it's there. Because he is, grace is. He will not run out. In accordance with the riches of God's grace. You can keep the money. Give me grace. 1 Corinthians 1.30, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. Okay, take that back to the book of Job and tell the boys. You guys are running around the circle here? Guess what wisdom is? It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. He has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. True wisdom from God is the work of Christ that brings about our change from unrighteous to righteous, our change from unholy to holy, our change from not redeemed to being redeemed. And not, not being redeemed is all the problems that humans face of being enslaved, having debts we cannot pay, being caught up in the chaos of society of life and death, not having an advocate to stand up for us to help us, being widowed, being orphaned, being lost. The wisdom of God, that is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. So, our man Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. 
and that in the end of all things, he will be standing on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, after my body has decayed in the ground and the maggots have eaten me up, yet in my flesh, I will see him. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. I'm not depending upon that experience and anybody else. I will have that experience. How my heart yearns within me for that experience. So what does that say about Job's understanding of death and after death? What do you think? Where did the boy learn that stuff? Yes. We don't know how he knows it, but he knows it. He says, I know. He has a conviction. And all I can assume is because he had relationship with God. He, he met with God in, in, his, in his own spirit, in his own way. And, and in that relationship with God, God imparted to him that knowledge, that conviction, that peace. He had no Bible because none of the Bible had been written. All he had was relationship with God. And that relationship resulted in a conviction. There's a redeemer. A biblical worldview is to believe that there is a God in heaven who created us. And that God in heaven has decided to communicate with us. Some of that communication is by him speaking to the spirit that he's placed within us. And then part of that is believing he has spoken to us clearly through these writings and that they are accurate. Job is at that time before anything's been written, so he has a, he has a worldview that will eventually be a biblical worldview, but the Bible doesn't exist yet. And so he has a worldview that there's a God in heaven. He is my redeemer. He made me, and he is greater than death itself. 